1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll begin reading in verse number 9. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jump down to verse number 50 with me. Verse number 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray now, Father, you'd speak to us. I pray, Father, you'd fill me with your spirit. There'd be nothing hindering my usefulness today. I pray, Lord, that I'd only say those things you once said. Protect me, Lord, from saying anything I ought not. And I just pray today, Father, that you would speak to each one of us. Lord, all of us need to think about all the things that we have to be thankful for. And I pray today you'd help us to see that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text today for this Thanksgiving Day sermon is verse number 57. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we could actually narrow it down a little bit further. Because the text is actually simply, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And all how much we have to be thankful for today. As I contemplated what to preach this morning, last week as Brother Phil spoke, and as I sat uh, in a tongue-speaking church, brother, last Sunday, as contemplating what it was that we would speak today, and I, I thought about diverging a little bit from our our studies in 1 Corinthians. For those of you who are visiting, we our normal method here is that we work our way through a book of the Bible, and we've been in 1 Corinthians for a long time. As you can tell, we're coming to the end of it now. I thought about diversion from that a little bit, just to try to find something that had to do with Thanksgiving and would be appropriate to the day. But as I continued to read chapter 15, 
my mind was drawn to that particular phrase. Thanks be to God. And I realized that there's no, no passage we're going to go to anywhere in the Bible that's going to be more appropriate for Thanksgiving than what we're looking at here today. This chapter, if you don't already know, is called the Resurrection Chapter because Paul in chapter 15 deals more profoundly with the topic of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ than any place else in the Bible. Oftentimes we use this passage at Easter because of that, because that's what it's talking about. But here we're going to use it for Thanksgiving because after he has spent all of this case, after he spent all this time talking about resurrection and, and all these different aspects of the resurrection, he gets very, very much into the nitty gritty of the whole doctrine. But after all of that, he draws it all to a head with those words. Thanks. Thanks be to God. And I wonder this morning, is there any greater reason to thank God than for what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, oftentimes we'll go around and we'll ask, what do we have to be thankful for? And we'll hear things like, well, I'm thankful for my health. Well, praise God, I'm thankful for my health. And all of us are thankful for our health. And so is every lost person that's healthy on the face of this earth. Everybody on earth can say that. Sometimes people will say, I'm thankful for my family and my friends. Well, amen, praise God. Don't you thank the Lord for family and friends? So does every lost person on the face of the earth who has family and friends. That doesn't differentiate us in any way. There are so many things. I'm thankful for the wealth that we have in this country. I'm thankful for the freedom that we still have in this country. We could say all those things, and so could every unbeliever say all of those things. But what is it that we as a Christian can say, I am thankful for today, that none of the rest of them can say? And I think we see it right here. Several things here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, everything that we're going to talk about here is based on the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. Uh, so that's the ultimate thing that we're thankful for. But we're going to see several different things that Paul brings out, uh, kind of as subtopics under that. And basically, I think here's what he's saying. He's saying when we consider all the ramifications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how could anybody have more reason to thank God than a Christian? Let me just mention five things. Five things that I see here that ought to make us say, thanks be to God. The first one is in verse number 10. Look at verse number 10. Verse number 10 says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Oh, it ought to start right there, shouldn't it? Thanks be unto God for his grace, for his grace. If there were ever a text we ought to underline in our Bibles, it's that one. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Thanks be unto God for his grace. One of my favorite preachers and, and commentators on the Bible is, a, is a, a preacher by the name of James Montgomery Boyce. I just, I like his writings. And as I was reading some of his comments on this topic, he said that grace is perhaps the greatest theme in all of the Bible. And I always struggle whenever you try to use that word greatest about anything in the Bible. It's all great. It's all wonderful. I don't know how you put any part of it above any other. And yet, he has a point. It certainly is at the top of the list. Songwriters and hymn writers have gravitated toward this word grace, this concept grace. As a matter of fact, the song, the hymn that is the one that is perennially listed as the favorite amongst people when surveys are done. For years and years and years and years, it's always the same song. Who wants to tell me which one it is? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Always at the very top of the list. 
Boyce mentions something interesting. He says that some wonderfully descriptive phrases have been used in hymns to describe the grace of God. And he went through a hymn book and he just kind of pulled these together. And he found these. It's described as the abounding grace, abundant grace, amazing grace, boundless grace, the fountain of grace, God of grace, indelible grace, marvelous grace, matchless grace, overflowing grace, pardoning grace, plenteous grace, unfailing grace, unmeasurable grace, wonderful grace, wondrous grace, the word of grace, grace all sufficient and grace alone. Thank God for the grace of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the fact is, we can take zero, zero credit for what we are. We can take zero credit for where we are in our life today. We didn't make ourselves what we are. The fact is, it's all the grace of God. We are what we are only and ever because of the grace of God. Jesus told a story one time in Luke chapter 12 about a rich fool. You probably remember that story. and You can read that when you get home. Luke chapter 12. Fellow thought he was a self-made man. He thought he had managed to make himself quite a success in life, and he had filled up all of his barns with riches and plenty. And he said, "Look at this! I am so successful. I'm such a great, great example of success." He said, "I'm going to tear all this down and build bigger and fill them up, and then I'll be able to finally sit back and take my ease." And God said, "I love what I love what the Lord said about him." He said, "Thou fool! This day thy soul should be required of thee." We aren't self-made. We are products of the grace of God. Jesus told another story in Luke chapter 18 about the Pharisee and the publican. You remember that? He said two men went down to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a publican. And the Pharisee stepped back and said, God, I thank you that I am such a great guy. Another example of somebody who thought he was a self-made man. The publican, Jesus said, wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he just smote his breast and he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have nothing that I can possibly commend myself to you. And Jesus said he went down to his house justified. We aren't self-made. We are products of the grace of God. Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar was a great king, thought himself a great king, thought that he had made himself this great king, stood up and said, look at me, I am Nebuchadnezzar, I'm this great guy, look at all this great glorious kingdom that I have made. And God said to him, you know what, I'm going to drive you out from men and I'm going to let you live out in the wilderness and I'm going to take your mind from you and I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to take your kingdom away from you until, and here's what it says, until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. The grace of God. The grace of God. Thanks be to God for his grace. That marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. That marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. That wonderful grace of Jesus. Greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free. The wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Oh, look at the example that Paul is for us here today. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. I have to say that. You have to say that. We all have to say that. And when we get to the place where we finally can say that and see that, how do we not follow it immediately with thanks be to God for the grace, the grace of God, his marvelous, infinite, wonderful, amazing grace. There's another thing here. It's in verse number 19. Verse number 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. 
I would suggest to you that we ought to say thanks be to God for the hope that we have in Christ. The hope that we have in Christ. Now Paul is, of course, and I've skipped a lot of things in chapter 15. We'll, we'll deal with it more in the next week or so. But he is building his case here that without the resurrection, Christianity is pretty light. It's, it's no different than anything else. Resurrection is vital to the, to the, to the faith of, of, of Christ. Our hope in Christ is based in the resurrection. With, without it, what is there for us to hope for? That's his basic point here. But I want us to just look at that verse. If in this life only we have hope in Christ. And I just want us to think about the middle part of it. Because it does say, does it not, that we have hope in Christ. And we have hope in Christ. Why? Because of the resurrection. Hope in Christ. You know, there were some men who were walking on the road to Emmaus one day. I love the story of these two guys on the road to Emmaus. Because I see myself in them. And we all ought to probably see ourselves. And remember what had happened. They're walking on the road to Emmaus after Jesus has been crucified. They think he's dead. They have not understood the fact of the resurrection yet. And they're wandering along and they're talking and all of a sudden there stands Jesus beside them and he's walking along beside them. And he's holding their minds back so they don't know, they don't recognize who he is. And as they're talking, I want you to notice what they said. They said, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. See, what they were saying was, we had great hope while Jesus was alive. But when he died, hope died with him. We were hoping. Oh, how we ought to give thanks today for the hope that we have in Christ. Thanks be to God for hope in Christ. And the only reason we can have it is because he's not dead, because he is alive. Hope in Christ can carry us through times of disease, times of trial, times of difficulty. I have sat by some of you through such times, and we have pondered together the question, how does somebody who has no relationship with Christ deal with a thing like this? Because apart from Christ, there is no hope. Hope in Christ can, is something that only the Christian has as he or she approaches death. No Christian needs fear death. Why? Because we have hope in Christ. Hope in Christ is what gives us unshakable confidence, even as we live in light of world events that shake and shatter everybody else. I read the other day of someone committing suicide after the election recently. But we have hope in Christ. The things that happen in this world don't shake us, because we have hope in Him. Hope in Christ covers every situation we might encounter in this life, and it's a hope that we have as Christians. I I remember a song. I haven't heard this song sung in years and years. One of the verses of the song said, soft is the voice of an angel breathing a lesson unheard. Hope, with a gentle persuasion, whispers her comforting word. Wait till the darkness is over. Wait till the tempest is done. Hope for the sunshine tomorrow after the shower is gone. Whispering hope. Oh, how welcome thy voice, making my heart in its sorrow rejoice. Anybody ever heard that song before? Whispering hope. You know, I remember that song from this church when I was... 12 years old or so, just a child, and I don't know that I've heard it sung ever since. And, and by the way, since it is family day today and the kids are in here with us, let me take the, let me take the opportunity afforded by that memory to uh, make a point. And that is this. You know, I remember that song. I don't remember that song because I was 30 years old at the time I heard it. I remember that song because I was a child when I heard it. And I think sometimes we think that kids don't understand. They can't hear. They don't, they don't get what's going on in a service like this. You know what? I think they're getting a lot more. And we give them credit for. 
And some of the greatest memories that I have of Christianity and things I remember learning in church are things I remember from clear back then, not things I learned when I'm old and my mind doesn't work anymore. Minds work better when they're 10 years old than when they're 50. Let me tell you, I can speak from experience. But I digress. Don't we thank the Lord for hope? In you, O Lord, I hope you will hear. O O Lord, my God, the psalmist said. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. You are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. Praise God for his hope. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul described the situation of a person who is without Christ. A person who has never been saved. He said it like this. He said, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He said to the Thessalonians that he wanted them to understand what they had in Christ, what they had to look forward to, lest, he said, you sorrow as others who have no hope. Do you see the difference? Outside of Christ, no hope. In Christ, all hope. Thanks be to God for hope in Christ. Number three is in verse number 20. Verse number 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I would suggest to you that we ought to be thankful today. We ought to say thanks be to God for a living Savior. And certainly this is one of the key passages in chapter 15. Maybe the key passage in chapter 15. Now is Christ risen from the dead. You know, those who are mired in the false religion of Islam don't have that hope. Those who follow Buddha and his teachings cannot make such a statement. Tom Cruise and John Travolta and others who follow the nonsense of Scientology, no such thing. There are seemingly as many false religions in this world as there are species of insects, and yet there's only one that can say, now is Christ risen from the dead. Hallelujah, how do we not praise God? How do we not say thanks be to God that we worship a living Savior? A couple of months ago, some of us traveled to Israel. We stood in the garden tomb. We walked in the very place where the body of Christ had lain. And as we looked, there was no body laying there. And as we turned and as we started to walk out of the place, there was a sign that was hanging over the door that said, He is not here. He is risen. Praise the Lord. And all he had to do was look. And he was not there. The body was not there. Oh, how the enemies of Christ and the detractors against Christianity would love to be able to disprove that one simple truth. If they could just get that one, they could wipe the whole thing out. But they have not been able to do it. It has not been, and it never will be disproven. There is nothing in the annals of history, nothing that has as much evidence for it as the very simple fact that on Easter Sunday morning, That first Lord's Day morning, that resurrection Sunday, that tomb was empty. It cannot be disputed. And not only that, but the enemies of the day who went racing to try to find the body had to admit that as they were racing to try to find the body, they were bouncing off of all kinds of people who were running through the streets, hundreds of them, saying, I have seen him. As Phil mentioned this morning, I have touched him. Eyewitnesses of the fact that he was alive. One only needs to look up in the very first few verses of this chapter to see Paul's references to so many hundreds of eyewitnesses who were alive at the time. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God for a living Savior. Paul talks about it. I'll let you read it on your own. Look at verses 20 through 26 on your own, and you'll see he mentions some of the ramifications of that wonderful truth. And we'll dig about it, dig into it a little bit more in weeks to come. But 
Timothy Keller says it like this. He said, Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. His death means no death for us. His resurrection means our resurrection. So we ought to say, thanks be to God for our risen and living Savior. Another, verse 57. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that we win. Thanks be to God that we win. I was telling somebody, I've, I've told several of you probably, that I have just about given up on sports. When LeBron James left Cleveland, something died in me. <laughs> the Penn State debacle certainly took a lot out of my joy of sports. And when Lance Armstrong was stripped of his seven titles, that was it. And beside all that, I have been a Cleveland Brown fan my entire life. And that ought to tell you all you need to know about why I'm about giving up on sports. You know, one gets mighty tired of not winning. Don't you? And you know, for the Christian who lives in this evil world, it sometimes seems like we never win. It sometimes seems like the wicked always win. Doesn't it seem that way? That's what the psalmist said. Flip over to Psalm chapter 10. Let's read a little bit of this. Psalm chapter 10. Because he had the same complaint. Psalm chapter 10. Look at verse number 1. He said, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places. He murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Does not seem like the way it is so often. The wicked seem to win. Oh, but listen, my Bible tells me we do win. And that same psalmist, if you read just a little bit further down, if you look at verse number 16, he says, the Lord is king forever and the nations have perished out of his land. I wonder, have you read the end of this book? I, I hardly recommend it. It's, 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 it's a good... It's a good practice. Matter of fact, you ought to read it all. But oh my goodness, read the end. Because you know what you're going to find in the end? You're going to find that we win. You're going to find that we have victory. Thanks be to God for victory. In our Wednesday night series that we've been going through on during prayer meeting on Wednesday night, we've been talking about stories we learned in Sunday school. Some of the old stories that, that we learned, uh, you know, way back to the Old Testament. And we've been reviewing. This past Wednesday night, we looked, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think that was last Wednesday night. And it's always amazing to me to think, and if you remember the story, these men were told to bow down to an image of Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, no, we're not going to do that, and they were thrown into a burning, fiery furnace as a result. But it's always amazing to me to think that as Nebuchadnezzar prepared to throw them into the fire, those three men were willing to say, it didn't matter whether or not God was going to deliver them here, because they knew they knew 
that they had ultimate deliverance already sealed, already taken care of. Listen to what they said. They said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. We are are victorious, they said, whether in this life or the next. But we have victory. Job. Job went through a period of intense trial and testing and suffering like no one else perhaps has gone through on the face of the earth. And as you read his account in the book of Job, you can't help but notice he doesn't understand what God's doing. He doesn't, he doesn't understand it. He's confused. He's concerned. But what he is not is defeated. Because look what he says. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Victory. Victory. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, describes how in spite of all that he had been through, he was not defeated. He said, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Polycarp is one of the great figures in Christian history. Polycarp was the next generation. He was one of the disciples of John and the next generation afterwards. He's most famously known for his death. For he's burned at the stake, burned, martyred for the Lord. According to history, the Roman proconsul took pity on him because he was an old man at the time. Gentle old Polycarp. He's the kind of person that nobody would look at and think he was an enemy. Nobody would think at and think there's any reason why we should be killing this person. And the, apparently the Roman consul, proconsul thought the same thing. And he gave him an opportunity to recant. He said, if you will only say, Caesar is Lord. That's all you've got to say. So simple. Three little words. Caesar is Lord. And offer just a little pinch of incense to the image of Caesar. If you'll but do that, you'll escape torture and death. And here's, here's what Polycarp said. He said, quote, 86 years I have served Christ. He never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? That's not defeat, folks. That's victory, even in death. Victorious, not defeated, even in death. Paul said, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He said, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. John said in 1 John, I don't remember if we read this one this morning or not, but he said, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't know what you're going through this morning, but I know this. If you are a child of the King, if you were born again, if you are saved, if you were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, then you have victory. In the end, you win. So all we ought to say it like we mean it this Lord's Day. Thanks be unto God for the victory that we have in Christ. One last one, and I'll be done. Look at verse 58. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. My brother, my sister, your labor 
is not in vain. We have a sure reward because we serve that risen Savior. And all thanks be to God this morning for that truth. One of these days, and all I believe it's going to be very, very soon now, we're going to go to glory. And when we get to glory, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And there's going to be some aspects of that that we're not going to enjoy too much, but there's one aspect of it that's going to be great. The Bible says that each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. And so there is a sure reward. Now, I think we need to be clear. I think Paul is talking here in this verse specifically to those who are laboring for the Lord. And let me talk to those for just a minute. You know, we saw some of this just yesterday. We saw some after the men's prayer breakfast. Well, we saw some during the men's prayer breakfast. That some of our ladies labored, as they always do, in such a loving way, uh, to provide for that men's prayer breakfast. But then after the prayer breakfast, we saw some who divided up and, and, and packed up boxes to distribute for the need. Thank the Lord for folks who were willing to do that. And then we had some who came up here. Anybody notice we have new, new uh, curtains in the audience? How many of you noticed this morning? I told Sue nobody noticed. Okay. <laughs> Some came up and worked on the windows and, 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 and some of the things that needed to be done in here. And, and thank the Lord for that. Hallelujah for that. You know, I, I know that when we serve God faithfully, we can get tired. And I know that there are some in this church who are the ones who always, always, always faithful, always laboring, always the ones to volunteer, always the ones who are here for every opportunity to serve God. You could choose to stay home, but you don't, you're here. And I want you, that group especially, to look at this first. Do you see what it says? Thanks be to God. Your labor is not in vain. You who allow your house to need repair here because you're busy working on God's house. Your labor is not in vain. You who give up times of recreation and entertainment here because you know there are things that need to be done in the kingdom and we're running out of time. Your labor is not in vain. In the Lord. You who give up some of your money that could have been used for your enjoyment, for new toys for you, so that you might stuff a shoebox that's going to go off to a land you'll, you'll not see and be given to somebody you don't even know. Your labor is not in vain. Thanks be to God for our sure reward.